All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And to sign up for both of those letters, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office in New York during normal work hours at 718-457-1426. I do want to remind you that Chen Lin has posted some spectacular returns over the years, Sarepta Therapeutics and Sorrento Therapeutics are two stocks he's following and two that I also follow in my own newsletter. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and encourage you to send your questions and comments along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Also follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia. Also want to thank our sponsors today for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Dynasert Inc. and Metanor Resources. Well, I expect to meet the managements of both of those companies in Toronto at the Prospector and Developers Conference this uh, week and uh, I do expect to have some insights from the management of those companies to pass along to you hopefully next week. The key to Dynasert will certainly be whether it can live up to its projections in terms of its sales of these units that are used that are being equipped to semi-trucks. They substantially reduce the amount of fuel that's required and also reduce the carbon emissions that are created from those diesel trucks. And uh, Metanor also has some brighter prospects from its mining project uh, in Quebec, a newly discovered deposit that uh, looks very encouraging. So far this year, the gold markets are doing very well. Through Thursday of last week, my model portfolio was up 15.8%. That compares to a 2.5% decline for the S&P 500. I will be meeting in Toronto this week with Quinton Henning of Novo Resources. Novo continues to be my top pick. It has gained more than 47% so far this year, but I believe it can more than double before the end of this year assuming that uh, the gold market remains strong and assuming also uh, that it lives up to expectations with respect to its preliminary economic studies that are uh, just about ready to start uh, and should be completed by the end of this year. Another junior gold stock that I'm particularly high on is RN Resources. It's headed up by Ivan Bebek and Sean Wallace. It's a team of two guys that have done very, very well in the past. Aaron will soon become active uh, exploring its world-class project up in Nunavut, and they're also looking to put together uh, some very exciting exploration targets in Peru. More on that later. Uh, the Bebek and Wallace team have had two very successful exploration companies in the past. You might remember Caden Resources was a sponsor to this show a couple of years back, and Ivan Bebek talked about that. It has uh, made shareholders uh, a lot of money. Caden was a big success, but both uh, Wallace and Bebek think that this is the biggest opportunity they have yet is the RN resources for reasons I'm sure that will become clear when I interview uh, Mr. Bebek uh, in the next couple of weeks on this show. Well, back on February 18th, when gold closed in London at $1,210, the following is what Michael Oliver said. Let me quote him. He said on February 18th, what I would focus on most intently now is gold. Its action was picture perfect. After breaking through the key long-term momentum breakout numbers, quarterly and annual momentum, from 1142 to 1169, it surged to just over 1260 in a week. Then it backed up over $60 into the 1190s. Today, gold traded back up to 1240. If it touches 1260, I think it's about to launch a move, possibly with speed, 
to the 1450 level, which is the next projected shelf of resistance. I would also assume that if gold reaches and exceeds the 1260 peak, that the S&P 500 might then be ready for a renewed downside, regardless of whether it has managed to nip out the early February rally highs. End of quote. Well, lo and behold, this past week, Thursday in fact, gold did in fact hit and surpassed the 1260 level, at which point it quickly rose to 1280. It backed off to close the week at about 1260 or so, but we shall see whether gold can continue Michael's upward move that he's suggesting could take it as high as the 1450 before it runs into any serious resistance. If so, the increase in the gold shares that we have enjoyed so far this year should be just the beginning. Well, I would, of course, like to encourage you to go to miningstocks.com to sign up for my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, especially now because it is an exciting time for the stocks that I pick. I should have a lot to say this weekend as I return uh, from the Prospector and Developers Conference uh, in Toronto. And now let's talk about today's show. I've titled today's show, What Would a Trump Presidency Mean for Gold and Gold Shares? Richard Mayberry and John Chimpaglia return this week. Last week, mining analyst John Tomazos said a Trump presidency would be spectacular for the mining industry as well as manufacturing in America. But what would, his, uh, what would uh, Trump's opposition to NAFTA and the TPP mean for global trade and the financial markets? Could a Trump presidency actually return America to its libertarian Republican roots and away from the elitist international banking oligarchs that now control the American political process and send Americans into perpetual war for the sake of global domination? Or, in fact, might Mr. Trump accelerate a move towards fascism, as some people fear? Well, there's no better person in the world to discuss that issue than with Richard Mayberry, who will be with me in about 20 minutes or so from now. Richard has an extensive historical knowledge, is an excellent person to apply past lessons of history to the present. So I hope you'll stick around and listen to what Richard Mayberry has to say. More directly, with respect to our present financial personal concerns, John Chimpaglia, who manages two Sprott Gold ETFs, will be with me. One of those funds is a larger cap company. The other one, a smaller cap junior gold mining company, companies uh, that are in that fund, and those have historically performed better than the big cap during bull markets. So John has some very interesting things. I think he's going to probably share a few of his top picks along with his general explanation as to how the company manages its portfolio. Uh, Let's go to our first break, and as soon as we come back, we'll be with John Chimpaglia. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dynacert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dynacert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dinosaur.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again John Champaglia. John uh, joined Sprott in April of 2010. He is the Chief Operating Officer of the Sprott's uh, Gold ETFs. Uh, welcome, John. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. Really good to talk to you. Uh, a lot happier circumstances than when you and I spoke a couple of years ago when uh, gold was on its way down and a very discouraging marketplace that was, but you guys have held in there, and uh, things do seem to be turning around, at least during the first couple of months of this year. 
what sort of what's your take on the gold market now, John? What, what do you keep your eyes on most closely uh, as you watch this market every day? The gold market itself, right? Well, I think one of the things that we look very closely at to try to gauge investor sentiment and behavior is looking at things that are visible, such as the number of ounces of gold held by ETFs, because ETFs are such an accessible way for investors to express a view on the marketplace. We look at a great measure that's available in Bloomberg that aggregates all the ounces of gold held by ETFs around the world. And this number peaked at 85 million ounces uh, back in 2013. It fell as low as about 46 million ounces at the end of 2015 and is now at 55 million ounces. Mm. So in just two months, 9 million ounces uh, has been added collectively to the uh, gold ETFs around the world. We think that's a really good sign uh, of how investor interest has rebounded in the sector as they're looking for a safe haven investment with all of the increased volatility we're seeing uh, in currencies, uh, the plunging interest rates, both on a nominal and a real yield basis that we're seeing, negative interest rates uh, around the world. And I think the last number I saw was $7 trillion of sovereign bonds now trading with a negative yield. Mm. Uh, so gold, you know, we joke sometimes that gold is now a high-yield asset because <laughs> it doesn't yield anything unless you loan it out versus uh, putting your money in a five-year bond with a, with a, with a negative interest rate on it. Yeah, interesting because, you know, one of the main reasons people always gave for not owning gold is the fact that you don't get any interest on it. So I guess uh, negative interest rates certainly remove that complaint. And, uh, of course, we've had near negative rates now for a prolonged period of time. And still gold didn't perform that well, but it does seem to be turning around now. So ultimately, I guess people were just buying the financial assets, which continued to rise very dramatically. And maybe there's some problems there now too we could see at least there's certain quite a few people that think that the equity markets in general may be topping out so if there's no place else to go maybe people end up going back to gold well let's talk about your funds you have the Sprott uh, company has two gold mining ETFs one is for larger mining companies and uh, that trades uh, under the symbol SGDM and then you have another one that's for the smaller the juniors uh, that trades on the New York Exchange as well under the symbol SGDJ. What is the size threshold uh, to qualify for the larger ETF as opposed to the smaller one? Yeah, and for the larger, uh, the senior minor index that we co-developed with, with uh, our partner on the fund, Zach's Index Services in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, we're generally looking for companies in the, in the $1 billion and up uh, market cap range. We're trying to find the companies that are, are more senior producing companies. Um, and the reality is there, there are not that many companies in that gold universe with, with, the, with that market cap anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a fairly small universe. What makes our index very different, though, is the way we select the companies in that universe and, secondarily, how we weight them. Most funds in the marketplace are what they call market cap weighted which simply says you take the number of shares outstanding in a company, you multiply it by its price per share, and that gives you the, the total value of its market capitalization. The larger the market capitalization, the larger the weighting it becomes in an index. Mm. To us, you know, that, that's what you would describe as a quantity-based approach, and it doesn't really make sense to us as investors in the gold space because we'd rather focus on a quality-based approach um, we rather focus on companies that are uh, delivering certain attributes in, in terms of their financial results using those metrics as a way to figure out how to weight them in an index. So, for example, in our, our senior miners index, we look for two factors specific to each company to try to determine the weighting. We look for the revenue growth of a company, and we look for its, its long-term debt-to-equity ratio. And those are two really important metrics, we believe, because revenue is the lifeline to any kind of capital-intensive business like a mining company. Uh, It really is the cleanest measure of its production quarter to quarter. And we also look at its balance sheet strength because uh, it's very capital-intensive industry. Uh, You need to have flexibility with the financing to develop new mines. 
and you definitely need the balance sheet strength to weather the downturns that inevitably come in a cyclical industry like mining. Well, for sure. And I'm looking at your um, at your holdings, and it, it might be interesting to mention to my listeners before we go any further uh, that they should go. Really, it's SprotsETF.com. Sprots. That's Sprot. As Sprot. I, let me start again. Sprot ETFs. ETFs. SprotETFS.com. And there, uh, John, very interestingly, every day uh, it's possible for investors to go there and see exactly what their portfolio contains. And regarding the, uh, uh, the strategy that you were just outlining, I look at your, your larger cap universe here, the, the companies, uh, the bigger companies. I see that Franco Nevada. You had to start today at 15.69%, Agneagle Eagle 13.86, and Gold Corp at 13.58. And then it falls all the way down to 4.91% for Barrick Gold Corp. Um, what do you see then? Uh, I, I mean, are they, uh, is there income growth in those top three companies outstanding? Do you see that? Or balance sheet, what is it that sets them apart from the rest of this crowd? Sure. Yeah, one of the just to speak to your first point, one of the one of the benefits of an ETF is that the holdings have to be disclosed every day, and we put those on our website. And and it's and, and you know in this kind of environment, people want transparency in terms of what they own in their in their underlying portfolios. But speaking uh, specifically to how we're weighting the index, the companies in the index, every quarter we're scoring the companies. So each company. In the universe, we're taking a snapshot, looking at its latest quarterly financial results, and looking at its one-year revenue growth, and we're looking at its its balance sheet. So, for example, a company like Franco Nevada, uh, the reason why it is so it has such a high weighting in our index is, first of all, it has no debt on its balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Being a royalty and streaming company, it has that advantage of not having any any long-term debt. So, it scores obviously well in that regard. When you look at its its revenue year over year, it's only fallen by a few percent, which is on a relative basis much better than some of the companies, such as Barrick Gold, which has fallen about eleven percent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we like to look for companies with that financial strength. You know, I think it's interesting. Franco Nevada just recently did a nine hundred million dollar plus uh, equity uh, raise. Um, and you and you kind of it kind of reinforces to us, you know, companies that are able to raise that kind of capital in an environment where we just came out of a four-year bear market tells us that the the marketplace is pretty comfortable uh, giving more capital to a company like Franco Nevada. You know, it's been able to opportunistically provide capital to some of the traditional mining companies that have had some missteps, um, whether that was problems with mines or acquisitions that have gone bad on them or whatever. Um, so longer term, you know, the, the that we think that company will be well positioned in the index, but it's a dynamic process. The, the companies change all the time. Mm-hmm. If, if a company like Barrick, who has been making improvements with its debt load, if it continues on that path, the index will score it higher and its weight should come up over time. So I think it's important that it's not just you know set it and forget it. You have to look at the companies every quarter and you know reevaluate them, see where they're where they're standing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, maybe you could comment then on Agneagle Eagle and Gold Corp. Sure. Well, on the uh, revenue side for Agneagle Eagle, very similar to Franco Nevada, year-over-year revenues down about four mm-hmm. percent, and its debt load isn't too bad. It does carry obviously some debt, but not too bad. Um, Gold Corp, even though the stock struggled a little bit, uh, the model basically rewards it because. Its revenue growth has been quite spectacular, even though we've been in a fairly soft period for gold. Mm-hmm. If you look at its Q4 2015 uh, revenue versus the same quarter of the prior year, and that's how we do our measurement, um, it, the, its revenue was up 39%. Now, the market you know, may take some time for, for uh, the company to be re-rated, but the model is trying to find the companies that are actually growing revenue, which means growing their production profile. So uh, I would just, again, like to suggest to my listeners, go to Sprott ETFs, Sprott ETFs with an S there, dot com, and you can see exactly every name that's in the portfolio, the large cap, the larger cap, or the one billion plus market cap companies that John was just talking about. 
John, the same thing holds true. Of course, people can also see uh, the junior index as well. There you have, I know that most of the companies that you own are in North America, predominantly in Canada even, I believe. Uh, but you, your largest holding among the juniors is a South African company. Uh, how does that come about? Are you, 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 there must be something outstanding about this company um, to get you to buy a South African mining company? Right, and, and the, the rule for that index on the junior gold miners is that the company has to have a listing in either Canada or the United States. Mm -hmm. And the number one holding in that index right now, Sedanye Gold, has a, an ADR that trades on New York. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why it's in there. For that index, we take a totally different approach. Um, smaller cap companies, obviously, at a very different stage of development. They have very different risks. They have very different options in terms of how they can finance themselves to actually you know, explore and develop mines and get to production. There, we're trying to focus on companies that are between $250 million and $2 billion of market cap. So we do have some intermediate companies in that index. Um, but the factors that we're using for the scoring methodology, we look at revenue growth, but not on a percentage basis. We actually look at it on a dollar basis. Mm -hmm. We're actually looking for the companies that are actually becoming producing uh, mines. We want to see that, that step change in terms of dollar of revenue. The second thing we're looking for is price momentum. And, and what, what that basically means is we're looking at the, how strong the stocks have performed mm -hmm. over the last six months. And what that tells us is it helps us to identify leadership in the group. So if a stock has very strong price momentum, like Sabanye has right now, um, we will reward the company because that's basically signaling us that something is working at the company. Uh, on the flip side, if the stock's uh, price momentum is very poor, it's usually a sign that the, the company's having problems, whether it's drill results, you know, unable to get financing. Um, there's just something not working there. So we try to emphasize the companies with the strongest price momentum and de-emphasize the companies with the weakest price momentum. It's a, it's a very interesting methodology because the dispersion of, of companies among the, the junior and intermediate is much more wide, I think, than the senior. And, you know, we think longer term those factors are going to help to, you know, bifurcate the market in terms of the companies that um, have a greater chance of success of becoming senior miners versus companies that are much more speculative and, in our opinion, require much more technical due diligence that an active manager should be implementing. For example, what Rick Rule and his, um, uh, his group uh, down in, in California are doing and to, you know, determine which stocks to, to buy for clients. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, you know, as I look at your junior list there, you've got a company that is, uh, I would think, would almost qualify for the other listing, and that would be Detour Gold Corp. Uh, uh, is their market cap not large enough yet, or would think it would be? Yeah, there are some companies that we that will overlap between the two funds. Mm -hmm. Um, and we just had to do it that way because the companies, you know, uh, some of these intermediate companies, for example, last year, 2015, they got so beaten up yes. um, that they, they started to tip into our lower threshold for market uh -huh. cap. Mm -hmm. So when we rebalanced the index back in November, you know, companies like Yamana and Tahoe Resources, they actually, you know, moved from the senior index down into the junior index. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I, when I look back in hindsight, that was a very opportune time because we were able to pick up um, a lot of intermediate companies at very bombed out prices at the uh, end of November. And those <laughs> companies have done very well in the last uh, two months. Well, they certainly have. I mean, a I, I, very interesting selection, the top five I'm looking at here. Oceana Gold is a co company that I've followed for quite a while. Tahoe Resources with a new acquisition coming up the way it looks. And, yeah, it's a lot of really fascinating things happening here. But, uh, again, your, um, your South African holding there at 12.38% detour, 9.78%. Yamana Gold, 682 Tahoe, 63 and um, Oceana Gold Corp. Really interesting companies uh, for sure. Um, 
What is it? It seems to me what happens in a in a bull market like this. You mentioned that initially people buy the ETFs, they buy the gold because they want to get out of the currencies. Perhaps they want some sort of. Uh, their currencies are losing. Most currencies are, have been losing against gold for some time, but now, with all the sort of um, uh, chaos that's in the markets, I suppose, and and then they start to look for shares to buy. And the first place I would think general fund managers go would be names like Barrick and names like uh, Newmont and Goldcorp and those names. Then it would seem that they might be a, a bit expensive compared to some of the others. Uh, that you've got towards the top as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that assessment. What we have seen, uh, what we have heard from from some of the sell side research analysts that we follow is they've been getting inbound calls from generalist investors, uh, predominantly United States, saying, "Hey, I need to get some gold exposure in my portfolio for probably the first time in three or four years," and they don't want to do any analysis on individual companies. Uh, so what they will quickly default to is, you know, give me Barrick or give me Newmont just because they're big and liquid, and, you know, it just gives me a way to, to put the trade on very cost-effectively. Um, so in the, in, the, in the recent rally, we've seen those companies do quite well. We've also seen the companies, I'm, I'm going to call them the companies with marginal economics, so they may have, um, they may be kind of marginal from a profitability perspective, or they might have excessive debt loads. We've seen those companies snap back the most because they, they, they definitely were hit the hardest in the downturn. Mm-hmm. The higher quality companies have kind of lagged a little bit because um, they've been in, they've held up better, you know, in, in the downturn. So we we expect that as the generalist investor comes back to the market, that you know they're going to start in the larger cap names and then slowly start to cycle into the mid cap names and then eventually the small cap names. Um, so we see we see the rotation happening amongst the big the biggest names right now. Well, I've certainly seen that. I've been around these markets, uh, I guess, quite a few years more than you, John, because I'm quite a bit older than you are, I think. But uh, it, it certainly has been the pattern that the big names, the household names, get fed first, and then down the food chain, and then uh, yeah. So I think the juniors a lot of times can be uh, cannot produce longer term in a bull market better than the uh, than the seniors um, which of the two funds uh, I know both of these are fairly young funds but which of the two have performed better if you look at the um, if you look at our junior index it's up around 49% year to date and uh-huh. this is as of today Wow! Uh, and that compares to about 28% for the senior index so uh-huh. we're seeing we're seeing what you would you know generally expect Smaller cap names outperforming in a in a bull market rally, um, but in terms of the capital flows into the categories, mm-hmm. you're seeing the capital flows go into the seniors, even though they haven't had the same, you know, leverage uh, price performance to, to to gold. Yeah, well, I'm sure uh, smart portfolio managers will be looking at overvalued stocks and looking for a way to. Uh, to uh, to move down the food chain and, and pick up quality juniors, and certainly if the price of gold remains up and the market remains strong, the smaller companies will be growing, both on their balance sheet and top line growth. Those things that you look for for the for the bigger companies. Just one more question that I can think of right now that I'd like to ask you about with respect to the juniors uh, and the companies that fit into that portfolio. Do you look for, do, do those companies have to be at some sort of, say, the feasibility stage if they're not producing, or is there some level? Because I, I have my eyes on a bunch of junior uh, exploration companies, I guess, that probably don't fit that. Well, first of all, you said they need to be a $250 million market cap, mm-hmm. I believe you said. But do they, I guess by definition, probably, most of the companies, if not all of them, that are in there would have passed through a feasibility stu- study but would not necessarily be in production yet or are they all in production yeah the, the way that the rules of the index work is we don't screen for whether companies at feasibility or pre-feasibility we're really using the market cap as a barometer okay. to try to indicate to us what stage of development it is and we you know we design this specifically with a larger uh, threshold for uh, inclusion index at 259, and the reason we picked that higher threshold was we just think it's very hard to arbitrarily pick companies with much smaller market caps unless you really dig into the companies and understand 
uh, the management teams, um, the deposits. And so that kind of work is, is best done by analysts and geologists, not mm-hmm. the computer. Sure. In our and- experience. Yeah, understood. Well, it is a, a unique way of, of picking stocks. I think you guys have come up with some really good ideas. We'll certainly be watching to see how the funds perform. And I would just tell my listeners once again to go to Sprott, S-P-R-O-T-T-E-T-F-S dot com uh, to catch up with the work that John and his team are doing. And uh, anything else you'd like to add, John, before we conclude our discussion today? Well, I think the, one of the things that's also interesting that we've been looking at is when you look at historical bear markets in the gold space, uh, one, of our, one of our fund managers shared a great chart with me, and this was the Amex Gold Bugs Index, H-U-U-I, mm-hmm. and he looked at it over the last three bear markets uh, back in the early 80s, down 80%, in the uh, late 1990s, down 76%, and the current uh, drawdown which came, uh, I guess, to January 18th is when we trough, another 80% decline. Hmm. So in terms of the magnitude of the three bear markets, almost exactly the same Hmm. in uh, decline and also the duration. This one has actually been longer from a duration perspective, Hmm. but they've all fallen between 76 and 80%. And what was very interesting to me is following those those uh, two previous drawdowns, the subsequent uh, peak uh, gains was 760% and 607%. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's very encouraging if, uh, if indeed we're on to the next leg up in what I think is really a secular bull market that began in the early 2000s. But uh, I don't know if you would see it that way or not. But uh, that certainly gives us something to look forward to then if this is the real McCoy, John. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to predict those kinds of returns, but I, I think it's, it's interesting to see how far we are. You know, even though we've bounced 40 or 50% in some of these stocks in two months, we're still a long way away from previous peaks. Right, exactly. Well, of course, you can't uh, take past uh, as a prologue to the future, that's for sure. So, well, I want to thank you very much, John. Really interesting, and I hope we can talk to you again sometime, maybe almost quarterly or something like that, to catch up on, on what you're doing there. And hopefully we'll have some more green on the screen day in and day out going forward, because Lord knows we've suffered, we've seen enough red, haven't we, in the last four or five years. So, Absolutely. So, I'd, love, I'd love to come back on. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thank you very much, John. And we'll, we'll do it again sometime soon, that's for sure. Well, folks, don't go away, because coming up next after the commercial break, Richard Mayberry will be with us. He's, we want to ask him what he thinks about a Trump presidency, what that might mean for the U.S. economy, for manufacturing, for mining. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Richard Mayberry. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dynacert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dynacert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dinosert.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am really pleased to have with me once again Richard Mayberry, a very regular guest on this show because I value so highly his, his views and uh, his insights, really, as, uh, as a man who studied history and then bringing history uh, it to life, really, by uh, showing the parallels of what's happening now with what has happened over uh, centuries of the past. Before we get on to Welcome discussing to this uh, with Rick, I'd like to tell you to go to Early Warning Report. Earlywarningreport.com is a place to go to follow all that Rick does. He's written a bunch of different books that are very, very important books that uh, really help us understand our country's history, have, help us understand how we've gone off on the wrong track and what we need to do to return back to the days when freedom and liberty was really uh, the main theme as opposed to some of the other slogans like democracy and uh, various things people are talking about these days. But in any event, I'm so glad you could join me again, Rick. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jay. I, uh, I always enjoy being on here because you're one of the best uh, hosts that I've ever uh, run across. You you do the, the homework that's necessary to ask the, the questions that go down two or three or four different levels instead of just staying in this superficial stuff that the news media usually covers. So well, I, for one, personally thank you for being a very good interviewer. Well, thank you, Rick. That's very kind of you to say that, but I might just also say that your letter, uh, those who read your letter, it prompts those kind of questions. So uh, we'll, we'll throw it back at you and give you the credit because you you have done the work. Uh, you are what you call the, uh, the 5,000-year-old man or something like that. You go back into history so far, and uh, I think people really need to understand history. We're given, of course, the a version of history that suits the status quo always, and so I guess that's nothing new in history either, but um, to, to dig beneath the surface and see what really happened as opposed to what we are supposed to believe happened is very, very important. So let's get into, uh, before we get into history, let's try to look at what's happening now on the, uh, on the political landscape in America. It's very hard to ignore that. Donald Trump uh, you know, I looked at Donald Trump when he first came on the scene, I'm saying, and I had recently read a book uh, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Bonhoeffer, um, you know, and what happened in Germany during the 1930s, during the times uh, following World War World War One, when they were in such dire straits, the German people were looking for answers, and, and the emotions were running strong, and they... Of course, they fell for Hitler, and the rest was history. It wasn't a very happy history. And I, I saw some parallels with, uh, I felt, initially with Donald Trump. But anyway, I'd like, your, I'd like to get your take on Donald Trump, if you want to just talk a little bit about where you're coming from. Well, I, I think that um, <clears throat> Trump uh, is an unknown. Uh, he is, as far as anybody knows, a shell, and nobody knows what's inside that shell. But what we see is a man who is playing the buffoon because he realizes that majority rule is mob rule. Uh -huh. the, the, typic, the typical individual is way too busy uh, with, with daily life, with uh, diapering the baby and washing the car and mowing the lawn and working at his job and all that, to understand the issues about which he votes. Um, you know, you stop that typical person on the street and you ask him, what do you think about Federal Reserve's quantitative easing? Or <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about the, the uh, geopolitical situation in South Sudan? And they'll just look at you with a blank stare because sure. they can't know, they cannot know a way, an informed way to vote. They can't understand these things. And I, I say that with great authority because... I study these things all day long, every day. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it for 37 years, full-time, Sure. Getting, getting into these issues, <clears throat> and I am not qualified to vote. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if someone uh, who spends his whole life doing that isn't qualified to vote, how can the average person who doesn't even give any thought and couldn't find the Sudan on the map if, you, if, he, if his life depended on it? Right, exactly. So I think Trump understands that. He understands that majority rule is is mob rule and he is playing to the mob um, and that's not to say every voter is uh, um, has a mob mentality but there are tens of millions of them out there who do and he has figured out how to get to them and what he knows is that the typical American is really angry at Washington um, Tens of millions of them probably now hate Washington because they don't understand these issues, but they know who has screwed up their lives. 
and that is the political establishment in Washington. And so, to me, I, practically every vote for Donald Trump is a vote against Washington. Right. It, it's a way of saying, I hate Washington. And no matter how you argue against Donald Trump, you know, it's it comes down to that. That's the decision people are making, is they just want a way to say, I hate Washington. And um, I think that's what's going on. And all of this, this uh, clowning that he does, he just knows that the typical individual only understands sports, entertainment, and his job. Uh-huh. And, and so he's being entertaining. <laughs> he's giving the people what they want. Um, and, uh, and I think that's all it comes down to. Now, something I will, will point out that I think is very serious is that if you look back in history, something you find consistently, not all the time, but pretty consistently, is that just before a country goes into a revolution, its politics gets really nutty. Mm. And an example of that is America itself. As they were going into the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party happened. That was a totally insane incident. The, the people were angry at this tax, and so they attacked the tea merchants. Now, the tea merchants were also against the tax, you know, because they didn't want the demand for their tea to drop off. So the tea merchants were on the side of the rebels, and the rebels attacked the tea merchants. Now, mm-hmm. that's how crazy it can get as you're going into a revolution. The, the Civil War was the same way. Civil War was really a revolution against the federal government that failed. And if you look at the South, and their, their thinking at that time, you know, almost all of of American industry that was capable of producing weapons was in the North, and the people in the South had themselves convinced that they were going to win the war. Hmm. It was totally insane, absolutely insane. And that's what happens very often as you're moving into a revolution, people get really crazy. And I'm sitting here on, you know, watching Donald Trump on TV, and I'm thinking, you know, this guy is really popular. <laughs> yes, yes. This is not a good. This is not a good omen. <laughs> well, I, I I can understand and I I sympathize with your with your arguments, but on the other hand, might it be all bad that that there's some revolution against a government that is turned really? I mean, for for some reason. I mean, it's not as as you point out. People understand that the government has really done them wrong. They don't understand why, they don't understand, they probably don't understand that we need less government to get back to uh, prosperity and liberty and all the things that our founding fathers uh, fought for uh, and 1776 was all about. But is it all bad, Richard, that there is a protest against the government? Oh, not at all. I, I think uh, it's, a, it's a very healthy sign, but I'm uh, really nervous about the outcome. Yeah. Because yes, I don't think we're ready for it yet. You, you do not have an alternative ideology for people to go to yet that's widely understood. Mm Now, you know, you and I definitely would like them to go back to the original founding principles um, that you know the founding fathers enacted into the Constitution, Um, and um, you know that to me is. It's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than what we have. But the people don't understand it. I imagine, again, you stop 100 people on the street, ask them, what is the Constitution? And 99 will have no idea. No, yeah, that's incredible. If they don't even know what the Constitution is, they could care less what it says. And, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, our, our leaders have proven they could care less what it says. So <laughs> yeah. I'm just, just wondering, um, you know, why do you think... Richard, why do you think the establishment is so fearful of him? I mean, one of the things that I've I've thought of is that this is a guy who seems to be a loose cannon. He can do and will do whatever he pleases or whatever the mob might want. I mean, democracy, mobocracy, the same thing, and he's playing on that that mobocracy mentality of, uh, you know, as as you pointed out in your letter, the founders never talked about democracy. We were not supposed to have. It was a republic, and it was supposed to be limited government. Would you see? I don't. But Trump doesn't come across as a limited government kind of a guy, really. I mean, does he? Uh, not to me, he doesn't. Um, he comes across to me as a total fascist. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Fascism. Fascism is the philosophy that says that um, all truth is a matter of opinion, uh-huh. which, means, which means right and wrong are matters of opinion, 
and so the government should do whatever appears necessary, no exceptions, no limits. And that's the kind of guy I think he is, and and that's the kind of guy I'm most afraid of. Well, is he maybe not an upfront, in-your-face fascist, as opposed to the guys that are playing the game as if they care about us, as if they care about truth and, and reason and all of that, but in the same time are, in fact acting more and more like a fascist government, our government, I would, I would argue. I don't know if you'd agree with that. No, I, I agree. Um, he's, he's a much more recognizable fascist than the other fascists are. <laughs> That's kind of the way I saw it. And, and so sometimes, yeah. you know, it's, it's better to have an enemy that you can identify than mm-hmm. one that is hidden, which nobody thinks is dangerous. To me, I see the guys that are, you know, the, the Princeton, Harvard, and Yale guys that, that are well-spoken, silver-tongued guys, well-dressed, uh, who are, um, you know, to me, are, are very, very dangerous. But, but in any event, uh, he, he is a phenomenon, and they're pulling out all the stops. I mean, last week, uh, Romney made a big speech. Uh, you, you said you watched that speech. I didn't have a chance to see it. What's your take? Was Romney uh, doing a good job of, of outlining the potential dangers of Donald Trump? Um, I think now th- this is this is not a, a, a statement that, of me agreeing with Romney or anything. But, yeah. but as a a piece of politics, it was masterful in my opinion. Uh-huh. One thing he did was look like a president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he spoke and behaved like a president, extremely polished. Mm-hmm. And I I think you know people react to visual things much more than verbal things. And I think that by just simply putting himself up there and going through that performance, he was creating an image that people can contrast against Trump. Uh-huh. And, and and they will see, and I'm sure they have already realized. Um, it's a guy who looks like that that you want for a president, not a guy that looks like Trump. Uh, so um, that by itself, I think, was a, a masterful piece. And and his logic, um, I think, was also pretty much flawless as far as tearing Trump down. But he didn't get at the heart of the matter, which is that people hate Washington, and they feel that a vote for Trump is a vote against Washington. Right. Well, he'll he'll come across as as another Washington figure, and we've seen what's happened throughout this Trump run. Is that whenever whenever people start to really try to put him down, it seems to have galvanized more support for Trump rather than hurt him. But uh, but again, I didn't see this. Just you have to wonder, Richard, if if maybe the end game here from the Republican establishment isn't a brokered convention. I guess we'll know more as the as more votes come in. And then perhaps uh, a Romney run again, perhaps, uh, with with the other candidates not looking all that strong either. Yeah, um, it could be. Um, you know, a wild card in all of this is, is the Electoral College. Those people, as far as I know, uh, in in all the states, maybe not all of them, I don't know, but, but the whole point of the Electoral College is to keep America from being democratic. Because mm-hmm. electors are allowed to vote for anybody they want, mm-hmm. and, and I think that Romney's speech was an attempt to cause these electors to go off on their own and vote for someone other than than Romney or than and Trump. And Trump, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, whatever happens in this election year, I think you and I both believe that we're in big trouble. The country's in big trouble one way or another. I was listening uh, this past week to Ray Dalio on Bloomberg, and he was talking about the enormous amount of debt, not just in the United States, but globally, how we've reached a peak debt situation and how every 70 or 100 years or so we come into these cycles where debt gets so extreme it cannot be serviced. And he's saying more quantitative easing certainly won't help. Uh, The only thing that's left, he says, is what... um, uh, is to create helicopter money. By that, he's suggesting that the Federal Reserve or the Treasury would just simply send checks of whatever size they choose to every American man, woman, and child and let them go to it. Now, Rich, you talk a lot in your newsletter, and I appreciate this about it. You you talk about velocity. A lot of people in our Austrian school camp are not really believers in velocity of money, but to me, I think you're spot on when you talk about velocity because people can when they get their when they have income they can either spend it or they can sit on it and hoard it 
and we've been seeing more and more of the hoarding of money. Of course, the big banks are hoarding money, and they're being paid now a whole half a percent not to lend, just to keep the money in the Federal Reserve System. So that's part of the reason, I think, why we're not seeing uh, a big velocity. But also, I think that individuals are finding it very difficult to make ends meet. They're shrinking paychecks in terms of the real their real take-home pay, uh, and their cost of living are going up much more, I think, than the government suggests. And so, therefore, people are just having to hoard money. But do you think this sort of helicopter money drop, which uh, also Martin Wolf two weeks ago or so in the Financial Times was saying it's time for helicopter money, because I think they realize that nothing they're doing so far is working. So what about it? Do you think helicopter money would get things going, and, and how would that work? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, if there's enough of it, it would create a temporary boom. But the thing to keep in mind is that that's what Franklin Roosevelt was trying in the Great Depression with right. the New Deal. The New Deal was an attempt to produce helicopter money. And what you need to do that is for Congress to be on your side and to be willing to spend exorbitant amounts of money uh, so that that money can be poured directly into people's wallets and bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what happened was the New Deal didn't work. Um, that Everybody in, in high school in the United States is taught that the New Deal did work. Yes. Did. If you look at the government's own statistics, there were more people unemployed in 1939 than there were in 1931. Yes. So the New Deal failed because there wasn't enough helicopter money. Congress didn't spend enough. So the whole thing will go for nothing if uh, if they whoever's in charge fails to convince the politicians to go on a mad spending spree. So and I think probably that nobody in Washington will admit it, but they know that. Mm-hmm. So as you say, uh, the different QEs have not worked because the money's still sitting in the banks, and um, we're we're heading. Politically, we shouldn't head there, but politically, we are headed for the helicopter money. And when it arrives, it's going to be, you know, just breathtaking, I think, uh, because it, it won't have any effect any other way. And, and we'll be on our way to Zimbabwe. Um, so the hyperinflationary scenario that we we had John Williams on this show last week, and he is absolutely convinced that that's what the outcome will be, that ultimately here... When the dollar gives way, finally, uh, when confidence is lost, and I, I don't know, Richard, about you, but I see the gold price picking up very nicely this year. Uh, commodity prices maybe bottoming in the way it looks. Uh, maybe, maybe there is some loss of confidence. I mean, after all, if you look around, and mainstream people are saying, "Well, wait a minute, nothing is working anymore." I mean, I mean I'm hearing the folks on Bloomberg say that. Mm-hmm. So where are they yeah. going to go? Where are they going to go? I mean, it seems to me there's been a surge as. Uh, uh, as John Tomazos, a mining analyst, pointed out last week on my show, uh, enormous amounts of money going into gold, into the ETFs, so far yeah. this year. So yeah. what do you think? you think we're getting, maybe we're seeing a, going to see a turn pretty soon in some of these commodity items, uh, precious metals and things like that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's the way I feel, but economics is so complex. Yes. Um, there's a, a thousand things that could could interfere with any scenario you want to draw. So I I think that's the way we're headed, but I'm far from confident about it because I've been wrong so many other times. Well, you know, um, Richard, you, you you make the point because this is this is a point, a philosophical point, really, a basic truism that. Nobody is smart enough to know, uh, you know, and this is why our founding fathers understood: leave the economy alone, don't meddle in it, don't 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 try to don't try to divine something. Let let the markets decide. And of course, we have decided not to let markets work at all. I can't imagine, Richard, how capitalism can survive when you don't allow capital to be a price recognition of capital, which is what they're <laughs> yeah. not doing. That's really a, that's a good point. Very good. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it's, people are, are taught in high school and college that there are government experts in the Treasury yes. and the Federal Reserve and on, on and on who understand economics and yeah, know just... how to make adjustments to make things work right. Well, no, they don't know that. That's way beyond any human knowledge. 
Um, that's it. You're getting into the divine when you're yes. talking about that. <laughs> that's, that's right. And the natural laws uh, that were that our founding fathers, at least some of them to a great extent, understood, have mm-hmm. been. Uh, have really been um, thrown out the door. Well, I want to, in a few minutes we have left yet, Richard, I'd like to ask you, you had, as always, so many excellent ideas uh, and, and uh, insights in your letter. What are you telling your subscribers to do now in terms of preparing for, I mean, what I know you put here, a very interesting on page two, uh, you have some price targets for oil, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, Defense stocks, which I know you're, you very have been very good with, uh, you know, whole collector coins, commodities, the Rogers Raw Materials Index. You got the Case Shiller housing sector, and you're looking at some extreme numbers here. For example, I might tell my listeners: you have gold uh, going to twelve thousand dollars, you got silver going to two hundred, you've got the Case Shiller Index going from one eighty one to five hundred. Now, again, you're as a as a humble practitioner of, uh, of Austrian economics, you you know that these are sort of long-term estimates, I, I guess, right? Yeah, uh, and And so you see this, this, as I understand your letter, you see this whole situation unwinding or falling apart, not all of a sudden, but probably over a period of time? Yes. Uh, although it could it could be sudden, um, you know, the, the amount of stupidity in Washington is great enough that it could be just it could trigger off just a sudden global catastrophe. Uh, that's a, a definite possibility. Um, the the point I'm making there with that chart is that you know one of the things the newsletter deals with a lot is that what's really happening in the world, the really big thing that's happening that's more important than monetary policy or than any of the rest of it is that the U.S. empire is falling apart. Uh. And Washington is trying to stop it, and and that's what all these wars, uh, I mean, these confrontations with other governments around the world and with Islamic State, you know, that's the U.S. empire finally falling apart, which is a good thing. Empires are parasites, and mm-hmm. it's a wonderful thing to get rid of it. But it, there's a, a period of trauma during the the collapse of the empire that's really nasty. And what I'm saying is that during this period of trauma, as the empire falls apart, I think we will see uh, the prices of those items that you just listed go to those levels. Um, And and it will be almost all driven by fear, and justifiably so. That's not to say that those prices will go there and stay there forever or anything like that. Sure. Sure. We are in a major historic crisis here of the U.S. empire falling apart, which nobody in Washington wants to admit. Mm-hmm. And um, as things get increasingly chaotic, the markets will be looking more and more for things that have value that isn't tied to the value of currencies. And those are the things I have listed there on page two. Well, as I watch the gold price action so far this year, it seems to me that there could be the start of uh, of this loss of confidence that uh, Walter Williams talks about. We'll we'll send the dollar down, and then he thinks we ha- we start to see uh, rapid hyperinflation. I think Walter, uh, I, I guess you know, but he's been calling for hyperinflation for for the last two or three years, and he's been wrong. It hasn't happened yet. I just think this goes to show you nobody, as you say, you're touching on the divine. Nobody knows when things are going to happen. We do know, however, that when hyperinflation strikes, as it did in Nazi Germany or in pre-Nazi Germany, that we were really looking at a hockey stick. I mean, it happened very quickly, right? So if you have this change in velocity that you talk about in your letter, uh, you know, you're showing your velocity charts still very, very low uh, towards the low end. If somehow people lose confidence, and confidence could switch on a dime, I think, that it could happen quickly. No, I think you're, you're, you're in agreement with that. Yes, I am. Um, yeah. and, and that's a kind of a typical thing throughout history. When you get a velocity-driven hyperinflation, very often it is practically an overnight thing. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm not predicting anything unusual here. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you're the 4,000-year-old you're the or 5,000-year-old man who's looked at a lot of uh, these different cycles going back to the Roman Empire. Even I know you've written about it and uh, extensively mm-hmm. written about history, and that's what makes you 
and your letter so unique. Richard, we're out of time, unfortunately. It always goes so fast with you. But I want to tell uh, people to go to earlywarningreport.com, Early Warning Report. Subscribe to this newsletter. It's very reasonably priced. It's one of those newsletters when I get it. You know, usually the mail comes and I tell my wife, ah, more junk. And then I see, oh, wait a minute, I got Richard Mayberry's early warning report. Good. I have something to open in the mail today, and I, the first thing I do is tear open and read Richard's report because it really is fascinating stuff, but more than fascinating, it's also very important, I think, life-sustaining information there. So thank you, Richard, for being with us, and I hope we can do it again next month. Thank you, Jay. It was great talking with you again. Always good. Well, that is all the time that we have left for this week. Next week, William Engdahl will be back to discuss his most recent book, The Lost Hegemon. And also, hopefully, we'll have some time to talk to him about a couple of recent articles that he's written, one of which is titled, Iran Makes Trade, Not War, with Eurasia, and another article in which he discusses the prospects of nuclear war over Syria and oil. Also, I do hope to have Michael Oliver with me to update us on his most recent thoughts with respect to the debt, equity, and precious metals market. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 